Good evening, everyone. Last week, we talked about Franz Mesmer, who inadvertently discovered hypnotism and likely was the earliest psychiatrist, even if his theories about animal magnetism were totally wrong. But what came after him? So originally, this episode was going to be about the natural philosophs, which my major source for this season mentions as the next generation of psychiatrists. However, the natural philosophs were heavily influenced by the Romantic movement of the early 1800s, which was very focused on emotions and the intangible. They didn't believe in scientific experiments or in clinical experience. And to quote my main source, they often viewed madness as the result of a normal mind surrendering to the passionate and turbulent forces of the immortal soul. The book is called Shrinks by Jeffrey Lieberman, by the way. Highly recommend. This is about all I could find on natural philosophs, though. Internet searching turned up very little, which may be because they didn't last very long. By the mid-1800s, natural philosophs were gone, often criticized by other physicians as full of crap. And to be fair, they didn't really have any results to show, which really is unsurprising when you shun scientific experiments. So then, after the romantic psychiatrists, we have, perhaps as a reaction to their predecessors, the first wave of biological psychiatry which was the idea that all mental illness could be attributed to physical abnormalities in the brain. This movement was led by a guy named Wilhelm Kreisinger, who was a German doctor. He was quoted as saying, quote, All poetical and ideal conceptions of insanity are of the smallest value, end quote. So that should tell you what he thought of the romantic psychiatrists. He instead focused on cataloging the symptoms of inmates at mental asylums, and then analyzed the brains of said patients after their deaths, looking for patterns. From this work, he sought to create laboratory tests, as well as interview questions and a physical exam that could be used on living patients to diagnose mental illness. It's a nice idea, but a little bit ahead of its time. He founded a new scientific journal, and inspired many others to use the framework of biological psychiatry. Among them was one Alois Alzheimer, who is of course where the name Alzheimer's disease comes from. In 1901, Alzheimer was having a very bad year. Earlier that year, his 41-year-old wife died, leaving him with three children to care for alone on a relatively meager salary. In his grief, he threw himself harder into his work at the psychiatric hospital. Later that year, he began studying a 50-year-old female patient at the Frankfurt Psychiatric Hospital. Her husband reported that the patient became paranoid, and then began suffering from sleep disorders, memory failures, and aggression, which must have been incredibly scary. Even in this day and age, Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, but I'm sure it must have been even worse without any inkling of an explanation. Eventually, the husband was unable to take care of his wife, and so she became an inpatient at the hospital, until her death five years later in 1906. That entire time, Alzheimer observed her carefully, and was able to examine her brain after death. In looking at her brain, he was the first to identify what we call amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, which are caused by accumulations of proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease, and appear as abnormal clumps in the brain. Alzheimer first presented his work at a 1906 meeting of psychiatrists, but unfortunately received very lackluster response. He was disappointed, receiving few comments or questions, and more or less no press coverage. Even in the official proceedings of the meeting, he received only a tiny abstract. Clearly, some of his contemporaries didn't think Alzheimer's work was very important. Regardless, he kept looking for similar cases. 
Over the next few years, they found just three more cases of Alzheimer's, with similar presentation. Alzheimer's mentor wrote a textbook, which reported on the first patient they found and designated the disease as Alzheimer's disease, which is why we still call it that. Despite this textbook being fairly popular, Alzheimer's disease was fairly rare, and on top of that, hard to identify. Lifespans have increased since then, which increases the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease today, but it's also a well-known disease in this day and age. Alzheimer's pioneering work went more or less unrecognized for about 50 years, unfortunately long after his death in 1915. So Alzheimer's disease was discovered during this era of biological psychiatry, all the way back in 1901. Unfortunately, that's about it. Despite the idea of biological psychiatry being pretty sound, the technology just wasn't ready for it yet. None of the other biological theories or research of the time really panned out at all. No matter how carefully scientists looked over the various folds and lobes of the brain, they simply could not find patterns or hard evidence for their theories. I can't really blame them. The brain is incredibly complex, and even to this day, there's still lots that we don't understand. As a result of this failure to improve understanding, the forces surrounding psychiatry would again begin to change. One famous doctor of the time described biological psychiatry as brain mythology, while another called it speculative anatomy, which are some brutal scientific disses if I've ever heard them. And so, next week, we'll talk about how the concepts of psychiatry are to change again, a little bit away from this biological direction, and talk a little bit about asylums. If you like what you hear, or don't, please let me know with the links in the show notes, or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, thanks to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music.